This is Green Street News, Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on the environment and your health. Welcome back. Stuff happens, things go wrong. Even with careful planning and backup systems, inherently dangerous things remain dangerous. On the show this week, we'll look at how a valve that didn't close properly at a nuclear power plant almost destroyed the entire state of Pennsylvania. It's a cautionary tale we should be paying close attention to. All that and Patty with the headlines from the week coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Okay, so I have an announcement, and then I have a couple of articles that are really interesting. Okay. Um, this is the announcement. It's Unplug for the Day. This is from our friends at the Unplug Collaborative. Oh, yeah. On the first Friday in March, the Global Day of Unplugging kicks off a 24-hour period from sundown to sundown to unplug, unwind, relax, and do things other than using today's technology, electronics, and social media. Look around the average American household. Smartphones, computers, gaming systems, and smart TVs may not fill every nook and cranny, but gradually these devices are taking up residence and bandwidth in our homes and brains. According to Pew Research, the typical American household contains five connected devices. The average American checks their phone 344 times a day. Yeah. That surprised me. I bet it did. Or once every five minutes. I know those people, too. Yeah. Media, friends, entertainment, education, work, and more are all at our fingertips. But maybe it's time to take a hard look at how all this connectedness, some people call it digital addiction, is impacting our lives and our relationships. Mm. What we're finding is people are just connecting less with humans and connecting more with their gadgets. So we kind of want people to look at that a little bit. What is it for you? Is there something grabbing your attention? And maybe you want to reduce that a little bit. That's Claudia Erickson, one of the principals of the Global Day of Unplugging, the nonprofit behind this campaign. Disconnecting or unplugging from all the digital static offers us an opportunity to reset it also allows us to make more human connections with the people around us. Digital connections lack the tactile essence of the real world, such as sight, sound, smells, and touch. Eye contact, for example, lacks depth in the digital world. In person, however, we gain a sense of someone even if we don't know what it is yet. For a list of more than 200 amazing things you could do instead of having your head buried in your tech, head over to the Unplug Collaborative at unplugcollaborative.org. Gather all your great ideas and then pull the plug on tech. Nice. So if you're listening to this show, uh, when it comes out, the Global Unplugging Day starts tonight at sundown and continues through tomorrow, March 4th. If you're listening after that, the Global Day of Unplugging is the first Friday and Saturday in March every year. But of course, you know, you could do this any day. It doesn't have to well, be it was day. actually it was actually really a, a huge relief to see some kids get off the school bus a couple of days ago when we had the first snow of this winter, right? Uh -huh. And make a snowman. Oh, I know. They were very excited. It was, you know, it's like, that's what they should be doing. Yeah. All Good. right. Shock to the system. Another tech article. Uh, this was actually a peer-reviewed publication from the University of Utah. And that's what it's called, Shock to the System. 
In this high-tech era, wearable devices such as smartwatches have proven to be invaluable companions for the health conscious. But a new study from the University of Utah shows that for a small group of people, some of these electronic fitness gadgets could possibly be risky to their health, even potentially deadly. Great. University of Utah electrical and computer engineering professor Benjamin Sanchez Tarones and Benjamin Steinberg, an associate professor of medicine, published a new study that shows wearable devices could interfere with cardiac implantable electronic devices such as pacemakers, defibrillators, and cardiac resynchronization therapy. This study raises a red flag, says Sanchez Tarones. All these gadgets interfere with the correct functioning of the CIEDs we tested. CIEDs, by the way, is cardiac implantable electronic devices. Okay. Okay. The slight electrical currents from these wearable gadgets can interfere and sometimes confuse cardiac implantable devices into operating incorrectly. Sanchez Tarone says that this is the first time a study has discovered problems associated with the gadget's bioimpedance sensing technology. He said, quote, the scientific community doesn't know about this. No one has looked at whether this is a real concern or not. And then ultimately, more studies are needed to evaluate the clinical translation of our findings and ensure the health of patients. We knew about this, but it's nice to have it confirmed by new studies. Well, we've always been curious about the use of, you know, wireless devices that people are going to wear, just mm -hmm. because we know about the potential for radiofrequency radiation to cause health problems and biological changes. So, Well, I mean, in airports, when you go through those scanners, people who have implanted devices usually say, you know, yeah. I'm not going through the scanner. Yeah. I mean, there there's a sense that there there has been a sense that this may be interfering for a long time now. Yeah. But it's nice to have studies actually showing that it actually does interfere. Yep, good. All right, what else you got? Okay, so this is again from the Ohio derailment. It's still, you know, a lead news story, okay? It's and it's an important a, one. It's gonna be a story for years. Yeah, oh, Because so no many question. people are gonna get sick. No question, this is from Wired Magazine, okay. written by Matt Simon, and the title is The Ohio Derailment Lays Bare the Hellish Plastic Crisis. Before it derailed, Norfolk Southern's 9,300-foot-long freight train, 9,300 feet long. That's almost two miles. Yeah. Was carrying 20 cars containing hazardous materials. The fire cooked off a haul of vinyl chloride, the chemical that makes PVC plastic and is also a carcinogen, and bathed the area in a plume of smoke loaded with highly toxic chemicals. Also on the train were butyl acrylate and ethyl hexyl acrylate, both toxic ingredients in plastics, and a slew of other chemicals which mixed together and burned. The incident has made global headlines, but the cause of this toxic slurry, namely corporations' insatiable appetite for plastic, hasn't been the focus. Quote, this is a major industrial accident that has resulted in a mixture of chemicals used for a variety of purposes, says Ted Shetler, science director of the Science and Environmental Health Network, a nonprofit group. You're creating conditions for new chemicals to be formed, and it's not only the individual chemicals that went into the mixture, but it's also what's being produced as it's being burned. Vinyl chloride is one of around 10,000 chemicals that have been used in plastics, according to one estimate. Over 2,400 of those chemicals are of concern to scientists, meaning they're either toxic or they persist in the environment and organisms. According to the U.S. National Cancer Institute, vinyl chloride is associated with lymphoma, leukemia, and cancers of the liver, brain, and lungs. One study found that workers exposed to PVC dust had significantly higher risk of cancer. 
Well, that's what makes the disaster in Ohio so alarming. Five rail cars of vinyl chloride burned, some of it done intentionally to reduce building pressure, likely producing toxic compounds called dioxins. Mm -hmm. This is this is really the, the this is really the story. Yeah. When you burn PVC or vinyl chloride, it creates dioxins. Because hot air from a fire rises, the flames from the train sent a black plume high into the air, potentially spreading toxicants far beyond the site of the derailment. The thing about dioxins is that they're potent at really low levels, and they're persistent and bioaccumulative, which means basically that they persist in the body instead of breaking down. Yeah. The EPA has deemed the air in East Palestine to be safe. Yeah, I you know. Officials have also said that the water is safe to drink. But there's still many unknowns about these individual chemicals and the way they mix together and burn. Given that it's so toxic, what was vinyl chloride doing on the train anyway? So I'm sitting here thinking, because you're reading about how the, the government officials are saying, oh, it's fine, you know, the air is fine, the water's fine. And we're doing the story today about Three Mile Island. And it was the same thing back then. And there were so many articles that I found in researching the, the, the show today that talked about how people need to learn not to just go out and say everything is fine until they know that it's really fine. That it's so not only unfair, but puts people at real jeopardy to say, oh, things are fine. No question about it. Uh, so let me just finish this because yeah. it's really interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Given that it's so toxic, what was vinyl chloride doing on the train? PVC is one of the most common kinds of plastic used most notably in piping, but also in packaging and consumer products like shower curtains. There are some 5,000 businesses in the U.S. alone that produce various kinds of plastic. Okay, Judith Eng, president of Beyond Plastics and a former EPA regional administrator says, it's not just trains, it's also trucks moving the stuff. But it's a game of whack-a-mole. When one chemical is found to be dangerous, manufacturers substitute in others that may be just as toxic, if not more so. There hasn't been the research to know if they're safe or even if they are less dangerous, but still of concern. It will take years before we know the potential side effects of replacement chemicals. The core issue though, is that what's put into plastics doesn't stay in plastics. When a bag or bottle breaks apart, it releases its components, chemicals, as leachates. Heat and freezing also fragment any plastic into microplastics, which have corrupted every corner of the environment as well as our own bodies. They've been found in human lung tissue, guts, blood, and even newborns' first feces. Yet we know little about the health consequences of microplastics, though early studies are finding that microplastics are highly toxic to human cells in laboratory experiments. We just have to make less plastic, says Ank. That's the only way out of this. But plastic is absurdly cheap on paper. But that doesn't factor in the environmental cost. At every point in plastic's life cycle, from production to use to disposal, the material is poison for people and the planet. Quote, when I talk to restaurant owners about why they're continuing to use single-use plastics, the first thing they say is because it's cheap, says Enk. But who pays? Don't tell the people in East Palestine that plastics are cheap. Yeah. I'm with Judith Enk, our friend Judith Enk. That, that is the only solution. It's turn, the only solution. Turn off there the are tap. some yeah. fairly critical uses of plastic, but there's a very, very small amount. We're talking yeah. about, you know, less than 10%. And all that other stuff is just single-use packaging, packaging, packaging. It's just totally unnecessary. 
While we're speaking of Judith Inc., I think we have to report on David Carpenter. We have actually have some really, really good news of something that happened last week. We were involved with, uh, with Judith Inc. and a couple of thousand other people across the country <laughs> yeah. in trying to help Dr. David Carpenter. Now, Dr. David Carpenter has been an expert witness in testimony against the Monsanto company, which has cost the Monsanto company literally billions of dollars. He was very early uh, in the research on PCBs. Um, and he's been extremely helpful to us in our own work on a variety of environmental toxins. David Carpenter teaches at the University of Albany, and one day the University of Albany got an inquiry from a law firm uh, suggesting that there were some improprieties about the way David Carpenter was handling his expert witness fees. And what they found unusual about it was that David Carpenter was donating his fees back to the university. They asked the university to open an inquiry, and for some reason the university did. And once they opened the inquiry, then the law firm went to court and used that inquiry as the basis to reopen the whole investigation in the court case that they were in the middle of. They thought they told the judge that Dr. Carpenter was being investigated for improprieties, which was complete baloney. Anyway, the situation was resolved at, at a higher level even than the University at Albany, yeah. where they reinstated David Carpenter and you know took away all disciplinary activities that they had undertaken. Yeah. So he's he's back he's back in the courtroom as an expert witness much, on PCB contamination. Much to Monsanto's displeasure. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. It was four o'clock in the morning on March 28, 1979, in the sleepy Londonderry township of Pennsylvania, a few miles south of Harrisburg. It's a quiet part of the state, home to Amish, Mennonites, Quakers, and other gentle folk, but there was nothing gentle about what was about to happen to the lives of the people who lived there. 
In those early morning hours, engineers at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant noticed a warning light on their control panel indicating some sort of mechanical or electrical system had failed inside the secondary cooling unit. The failure caused the temperature in the primary coolant to rise, triggering an automatic shutdown of the reactor. At that point, a relief valve failed to close, causing much of the coolant to drain away, exposing the reactor core, which began to melt. The operators of the plant had no idea what was happening. They were unable to diagnose or respond to the automatic shutdown of the reactor. They panicked. Without proper training in how to respond to an accident like this, they started a series of actions that made the problem much worse. The nuclear fuel began to melt through its metal container. About half of the reactor core melted. A geyser of steam erupted from the top of the reactor building, spewing radioactive gases into the surrounding community. The melting fuel created a large hydrogen bubble inside the reactor that officials worried might cause a gigantic explosion, releasing tremendous amounts of radioactive material that would permanently contaminate large parts of several states. It was truly an environmental nightmare. At 7.24 that morning, officials at the Metropolitan Edison Company informed the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency that the plant had experienced a, quote, general emergency because of high radiation levels. An hour later, that information was passed by a civil defense worker to an enterprising reporter at a local radio station. And by 9 a.m., the news was being carried on the AP wire across the country. People in the local area were understandably frightened. We had a family business in Harrisburg and a family business in Lancaster, and people were fearful. And what had happened from the get-go is the communication, which came from the company, was poor, um, actually inadequate, and then we later found out misleading. So you're in a rural area. People sniff that out real quick. That's Eric Epstein, a lifelong resident of the area near Three Mile Island and now the chairman of Three Mile Island Alert, a nonprofit citizens organization dedicated to the promotion of safe energy alternatives to nuclear power. He says when the plant was proposed, a lot of people were supportive. Almost without an exception, everybody was supportive of building the nuclear power plant. You know, people don't realize that Three Mile Island is actually located in the middle of like an artificial recreational area called Lake Frederick. So a lot of people were familiar with Three Mile Island. There's a boating dock to the north. There's a dam to the north where people water ski. To the west is Goldsboro. There's another boat dock. And, you know, even though we're deregulated now, this construction occurred at the height of regulation. Therefore, there's a lot of park and recreation. There's a shad ladder, there's good fishing, there's tons of walking trails. So Three Mile Island was kind of like the energy equivalent of Levittown. A beautiful natural area with extra amenities that came along with the power plant. And it provided good jobs for local citizens. Everything seemed just fine until it wasn't. It's a Babcock-Wilcox design. You know, we're eight of these plants around the country, half were already shut down. 
some you know had a good operating record like tmi1 the plant not involved with the accident some were lemons like rancho seiko and davis bessie uh, and tmi2 so tmi2 came online on december 30th 1978 it was five years behind schedule and two and a half times over budget so it was rushed to get online um, it operated January, February, March. You know, a good portion of that time it was shut down. The part that failed during the accident, four of the pilot operated relief valve, had a 9% history of failing. You know, we through litigation were able to establish that the manufacturer had contacted the company without response. So you have operators who are aware their equipment is, you know, faulty. Operating a plant, the pour operates as it should to relieve pressure indicates that it's closed and it never closed. And so you start losing hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. There's a shift change in the morning. People finally recognize what's going on. As the accident uh, progresses and you get into cold shutdown, you realize that we had a loss of coolant accident, you know, almost 50% of the core melted. We didn't realize the temperatures until the early 80s, which were in excess of 5,000 degrees. They contact the governor, Dick Thornburg, a moderate Republican from Pittsburgh. Most of his staff didn't even know what Three Mile Island was or where it was. To his credit, Thornburg was also an engineer and an attorney. So he quickly deduces that the information flow is for And so you have Wednesday the accident, and by Thursday the lieutenant governor, Scranton, a blue blood from the coal region, past three kids announces to the community that we're getting information that the veracity of which is not credible. In the early hours and days of the Three Mile Island incident, no one knew for sure what was happening. That encouraged the plant's owner, Metropolitan Medicine, to put the best face on things and make the most reassuring statements it could, given what was known at the time. So as they learned more and the news got worse, the company had to keep going back to the public and the authorities to say, it's worse than we thought. Accident Wednesday, Thursday, Scranton, we have no faith. And Friday, there's a famous conversation between Governor Thornburg and Commissioner Hendry. And I forget who said what to whom, but essentially what the quote was, we're like two blind men in a cave looking for a flashlight. So it's also very warm and people are out and school is in session. So on Friday uh, morning, Governor Thurnberg recommends a precautionary evacuation for preschool children and pregnant women within five miles of the plant. This is, by the way, extremely important. And we find out litigation because in terms of being reimbursed, the company didn't want to reimburse anybody who lived five miles, one inch from the plant. So target population, pregnant women, preschool children was 5,000. 144,000 people evacuated. And that was part of the psychic uh, terror because people didn't really know what nuclear was. Friday was a train wreck because uh, kids were in school in our school district, Central Alfred, of which I became a school board director uh, for eight years later in life, um, was in the 10 mile zone. So nobody really knew what the plan was. And you could have a kid in elementary, a kid in middle and a kid in high school that could be taken to three different sites. 
you know, what we quickly found out, bus drivers don't always report. They have kids too. So it was a scramble. Uh, my sister was evacuated. She was at Lingelstown Junior High. She was one of the last people left. The evacuation centers were 12 miles away. One was at William Penn High School in Harrisburg and the other was at Hershey. Uh, no idea what was happening. People didn't know how long they were gonna stay away for. Um, again, it's a factor of economics. If you didn't have money, you didn't evacuate. If you had a little money, you got on a bus and it came home sooner. So there's all these dynamics. Nobody knew what potassium iodine was. There was no radiation monitoring. The company was unprepared. The government was unprepared, and certainly the community was unprepared for a potential nuclear disaster. As it turned out, the hydrogen bubble inside the reactor did not explode, and a full-scale disaster was averted. But there's still radiation being emitted into the air from the old site. Eric Epstein is not one to let go easily or to sit back and let someone else do the work. You have to have a longitudinal commitment to track this kind of technical, economical, social issue. It's, you know, it's difficult. People lose interest. And, um, you know, we're two generations out. You know, the same people that evacuated on March 30, 1979. And, and some of those people were either, you know, the parents swooped in and got them. Parents forgot to get them. School bus got them. On the West Shore, one elementary school told the kids to walk home, hold their breath and put a book over their heads. So you're still in the middle of the Cold War and you're in the middle of an oil embargo. America's not feeling great about itself. And on top of that, the China syndrome had just opened three weeks earlier. So people were getting information on nuclear based on the China syndrome, which has this really powerful line, if you remember, where they said, what would have happened? in the fictional movie, they said, well, what would have happened is we would have lost an area the size of Pennsylvania. At the time, there was no money. There was no decommissioning fund. So we had to raise a billion dollars to remove most of the fuel. And that took about 14 years until we went into mothball status. And remember, the plane only operated for a month, well, let's say three months. So the fuel inventory was not that large. We didn't have any spent fuel. But what we had, we took in, um, in rail to Idaho. And that's the first time where we became the subject of scorn because nobody in the rail route wanted to be next to waste coming from Three Mile Island. So there, we have been in litigation in one way or the other actually since 77. Rural Pennsylvania, just south of Harrisburg, still has its appeal for Eric Epstein and for good reason. It's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's historic. And thanks to Eric and scores of other citizens who stepped up and made sure the company cleaned up its mess, it's safe. What people need to understand, and this is one of the elements of the Three Mile Island that people don't get, Central Pennsylvania is a magnet for tourists. We have Pennsylvania Dutch, we have Hershey Chocolate, we have the Gettysburg Battlefield. And psychologically, to go from a place that's desirable to go to a place that's poked fun of on Saturday Night Live, 
not really a, a positive experience. Eric Epstein is the chairman of Three Mile Alert, a nonprofit citizens organization dedicated to the promotion of safe energy alternatives to nuclear power. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you enjoyed today's show, we really hope you'll tell some of your friends or family about it. We're trying to build our audience, and you can help. Special thanks to our guest, Eric Epstein, our news editor, Alan Weiniger, our webmaster, Allison Dunn, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.